Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Mainline, where we seek to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus for Philadelphia's historic mainline and surrounding communities. Every week, we look again to the story of the Bible, the lavish grace of God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website, libertymainline.org. Okay, friends, um, I uh, want to begin this sermon with a quick update. Uh, some of you may already know this, um, but uh, a couple days ago, uh, or last, actually yesterday, geez, it feels like a long time, uh, this morning I received word from uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Peter, Bush, who attends St. Mary's, that his wife, Mary Lou, who also attends and is a colleague of mine at, at Villanova, was in a car accident, a serious one, um, and uh, is in hospital at the moment in a coma. And so that kind of threw me for a tailspin. Um, the last 24 hours have been pretty intense. Um, I would like to start this sermon um, a bit impromptu, just offering a prayer uh, on behalf of Mary Lou uh, Hill and uh, Peter Bush and um, their daughter, Penelope, uh, they were, if you remember, in the corner last week selling cookies and um, have been, I think could probably honestly say, uh, one of the reasons that we are even here. Uh, she's a member of the vestry. She does everything. And she's full of goodwill and is a mentor to me and a friend. So uh, if I, uh, you know, get choked up at any point in this sermon, I apologize. I'll get through it. But uh, there's, uh, you know, a lot to think through, and I would like to just offer this prayer. Father in heaven, you surround us with your love. Through the generations, you have comforted us and spoken to us. We are not alone in this pilgrimage of faith. Let the words of this sermon serve to remind us of this, that we are not alone. That the race set before us is not just one to put up with, but may be endured in the name of Christ and in the strength of the joy of Christ. I pray for my friend, Mary Lou. I pray for my friend, Peter. For our brother and sister, for their beautiful daughter, Penelope. Grant them the endurance, the strength to look to you, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of their faith. And help us support them pray this in your name. Amen. And today's reading comes from the book Hebrews. It's short. Let's hear what the Lord has to say to us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters, in this sermon, I want to reflect on the mystery of faithful endurance. The passage today from Hebrews speaks of a great cloud of witnesses. These witnesses stand for the generations in faith that came before us, providing us with both a model and a testimony to God's faithfulness. We are told to run the race in the presence of these witnesses. We are told to do so with endurance and to look to the one who went ahead of us and finished his race. That's, in my view, quite enough for a sermon. But we need to build up to it, or at least I need to build up to it. And to begin, I want to set the stage with some examples of endurance. These are not good examples, mind you, but they are examples nonetheless. Even bad examples can be instructive for our journey. So stay with me as I indulge in a literary illustration. In her celebrated novel, Frankenstein, Mary Shelley casts the natural world as a character in the plot. The novel's length is extended through romantic descriptions of the Swiss Alps, while its titular character, Victor Frankenstein, who, by the way, is the scientist, not the monster, thanks Hollywood, treks through the mountains to bask in their sublimity and find rest for his soul, but not for long. As the bodies pile up and his conscience starts to sting him, Victor loses contact with the beauty of his surroundings. The natural world becomes a dead thing, and he likens himself to a blasted stump he observed in his youth, scorched by lightning and reduced to rubble. The world no longer calls out to poor Victor, and he can only find purpose in a vengeful quest to destroy the murderous monster. For the vengeance set before him, he's ready to endure the Arctic. The novel ends, unfortunately, with Victor dying a pitiable death in the bowels of a ship. The causes of our endurance may be a mystery to us, but sometimes the reasons are transparent, at least on the surface. We know that revenge can be a powerful motivation. It draws from a bottomless pit of grievance and spite. In seeking revenge, we fixate on a final vindication forcing our enemies to answer for inflicting past injuries. We can run a long time on the hot fumes of vengeance. Think of the Psalms. How many of them cry out for God's judgment to rain down swiftly. Giving voice to this desire can be a step in the right direction. Allowing it to consume us is the fate of many would-be gods. Shelley calls him Victor, but it's only a name. Aside from a thirst for vengeance, some will endure for other, less obvious reasons, or even in the absence of reasons. As an emotion, vengefulness can give color to existence. Morally flawed and dangerous, at least we can say it inflames us with the promise of a purpose-driven life. But others can keep going in the absence of purpose. Before Victor gave in to revenge, he lost contact with the world. Friends and family, and even his childhood sweetheart, 
struggled to reach him as he concealed his dark secret. Eventually, his monster wreaked havoc on his life and one by one struck down each person that he loved. With each loss, Victor teetered on the edge of profound grief. If vengefulness begins in suffering, it resolves towards a purpose. That is, by deciding to take matters into your own hands. Grief, on the other hand, can leave us numb and senseless, suffering a void of meaning whose boundaries are potentially infinite. We can run a long time on the hazy fumes of grief. Speaking into this void can be a step in the right direction. Leaving it well alone or failing it too quickly and passionately, as Victor did, can summon monsters of a different and more disturbing sort. Revenge, grief. These mark two extremes of the human experience. What we can say about them both is that they bring life to a point. They cast a shadow over everything within us and around us. In their shadow, we may feel isolated, alone, and heavy laden. And in our hearts, it may not matter to hear that others have grieved before us and survived, or that others have been wronged and felt a desire to lash out. The loss that we grieve is lost to us and no one else. That which was taken was taken from us and demands a response. To feel this way is not just natural, it's appropriate. Not to feel this way may mean you never really loved. But from there, it makes all the difference as to how one proceeds. We need better examples of what it takes to endure that doesn't devolve into obsession or languish in darkness. Most of all, we need examples that teach us what to do with the longings and groanings that come from living in time. For our temporal loves matter and are the stuff of life itself. A faith that denies them or that seeks to replace them does not deal with the world as we encounter and experience it. The English author Julian Barnes, after suffering a great personal loss, recounts a letter he received from a friend in which he read, it hurts as much as it is worth. This is true. And it's important that we learn to endure its worth. It's also important to know, or perhaps to believe, that our hurt is not the thing that secures our beloved's worth. We need better examples of a faith that bears witness, that teaches us how to endure the losses we suffer. Among the examples we find in Hebrews' cachet of witnesses is the father of faith himself, the patriarch Abraham. In his celebrated meditation on the Akedah in Genesis 22, the scene when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard commends Abraham for the greatness of his faith. And what made Abraham's faith great, Kierkegaard wonders. Of course, it is great to hold fast to the eternal. However, Kierkegaard argues, 
and this is the majesty of Kierkegaard's interpretation, it is greater to hold fast to the temporal after having given it up. Note that phrase, after having given it up. I think here lies an insight into the mystery of faithful endurance. Abraham's faith was great. He is part of the cloud of witnesses, not just because he trusted the eternal God over Isaac or in spite of his love for Isaac or in exchange for his love for Isaac. Abraham's faith was great because he surrendered his son Isaac, his only son, the one whom he loved, as Genesis puts it. And in this way, and through this way, he nevertheless held fast to him. He did not stop loving Isaac. That's a remarkable faith to behold. And it's what I want to share with you today. I have no personal insight into the mystery of endurance. What I've endured in this life is worth but a penny to others' misfortunes. Whatever my fortune is in being so poor is not worth counting. But I know I have loved, I know I have seen love, and I know I've experienced the reality of joy and love. It may be that each of us can only speak from what we know, so be it. But the great cloud of witnesses offers something for us to learn from. The faith of Abraham is also, by God's grace, our faith. If only because by God's grace it wasn't just his faith. And so, if any of us here today have loved, if any of us have grieved the loss of someone or something, if any of us have longed to see our days end in joy and for justice to roll down and for our children to flourish and to learn the name of God, we can look to Abraham and ask him what he knows in order that his faith might show us a better way. Father of the faith, how did you look upon your son. Any father or mother who loved their son, who loved their daughter, would want to hold on to them. But how did you hold on to him? How did you hold fast to him? How did you endure the three days journey to Moriah? Today's passage in Hebrews offers this in reply. By laying aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, Abraham ran the race before him in faithful obedience to God. In faith, Abraham declared to God, Isaac belongs to you. Already to declare this is to endure a great trial, which thankfully was the only trial God would demand. Abraham's answer was his endurance through faith in a promise. Traveling three days with Isaac, the race set before him. He did not abandon Isaac, nor did he hold fast to him, but he loved him. He loved him in such a way that called heaven down to earth. He loved him in such a way that called heaven down to earth. To love in such a way that calls heaven down to earth. This tells us something. This tells us something about the mystery of endurance. In St. Paul's language, Abraham exercised the faith that works through love. 
In this faith, he reached out with hope, or better yet, with hope against all hope, to a heavenly Father who alone can bring our loves to completion. What Abraham could not see, he had to believe would be provided. In our time, God has shown us what Abraham could not see. In all fullness, God has answered Abraham's faith with his love. He brought heaven down to earth, as Abraham's faith had demanded. Yet this gift was not given so as to abolish all earthly loves, at least not yet. The love of God, revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ, does not simply replace our loves or sweep them up into a distant heaven. In our time on this earth, when we meet the love of God in the person of his Son, our longing for the union of heaven and earth is made to expand and intensify and stretch to encompass the world. The good things we love now come alive in a new horizon, and the things we shouldn't love are exposed as a hindrance. In looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, we discover a new way to love and let go. But let's not lose sight of that little word slipped into verse 2. For the joy set before him. If Abraham's faith was in the promise of God yet revealed, ours is in the fulfillment that we witness in the risen Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. It's still a promise, but it's a promise whose joy has been revealed. The author of the Hebrews puts it dramatically, if somewhat confusingly, like this. Hebrews is just a riot. For you have not come, followers of Jesus, to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to him. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Whatever sense we make of these particulars in this passage, we can't fail to notice how overflowing and abounding in joy its imagery is. A better word has been spoken. The new covenant of the Son marks the end of fear-based sacrifice and the liberation of righteous love and the power of a new kingdom. We have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Moriah, not Mount Sinai. The heavenly Jerusalem is a union of heaven and earth. It is the body of Christ. And so we gather here, young and old, rich and poor, to partake in the Savior's accomplishment, to draw strength from his joy. I would have us be more articulate about the nature of this joy, a joy so essential to the endurance that Christ models. Is it essential to you? 
brothers and sisters, this joy? How do you account for the joy set before him? Did Christ find it in a distant and heavenly place, or did it have some kind of purchase, some kind of connection, grounding in the world he came to dwell in? Christ's joy is inseparable from the work of the Father. And the work of the Father is to bring us back to him. The work of the Father is the joy of the Son. In awakening and cultivating faith in us, Christ rejoices. For faith opens the door to the Father's innermost secret, the joy that surpasses earthly understanding and possibility. The Gospels often associate this joy with a child. Anyone who's been present to the joy of a child will know something of its raw, boundless energy and radical self-abandonment. The Father's secret is not an esoteric knowledge of the elite. It's more like an open secret that resides in the miracle of existence. What the child knows of this joy is not known to them in faith, but faith secures it. Faith preserves it. Faith opens it out to new beginnings. The mystery of endurance lies in the faith that asks, seeks, knocks. The meaning you can't secure. The beauty you struggle to see. The joy that eludes you. And the anger that threatens to consume you. All of them crash against the door that faith knows how to open. You can crash a long time against this door to no avail. That's not endurance. That's not joy. You're holding on the wrong way. Come to me, says the Holy One, and take my yoke upon you. It hurts as much as it's worth but its worth is mine to give back to you. This is the joy set before me, and this is the joy set before us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope that either through or in spite of the human messenger, you heard the gracious invitation of God to the abundant life of love and service found in the transforming person and work of Jesus. If you've been encouraged by this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, or subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, check us out at libertymainline.org.